Hey folks, this is Michael, and welcome to Tatter. Before we get started, I just want to say two things. First, unless anyone on Tatter says that they are speaking on behalf of any particular organization or group, you should assume that each person speaks for themselves and themselves alone. I always want to point that out to avoid misunderstanding. The second thing that I want to say is thank you. Thanks to each of you who offers financial support for Tatter through Patreon, but more generally, whether you do that or not, thanks for listening to this podcast. It means a lot to me. With all that said, let's get started. Here's Tatter. But you start to follow the money, and you don't know where the fuck it's going to take you. Any of you who are fans of the HBO show The Wire will recognize that that was Lester Freeman emphasizing the investigative value to police of following the money. In that case, money flowing through illegal drug organizations. In this episode of Tatter, we follow the money in electoral politics. Unless you are independently wealthy and can self-fund your campaign, like former New York City mayor and now former presidential candidate Mike Bloomberg, If you run for office, especially a major office such as president, you will depend on the generosity of donors. But whom can you ask for money? What kind of super PAC support can be helpful, but what kinds of political risks does relying on super PACs carry? What is a super PAC? What's been changing as more small donations come in to candidates online? What's the impact of such changes on the influence of political parties? What's the impact of disclosing who one's donors are? These are the kinds of questions I discussed with my two guests. Julia Azari is Associate Professor and Assistant Chair in Political Science at Marquette University. She works on, in her words, the American presidency and rhetoric and political parties and the intersection of those three things. She writes for the political science blog, Mischiefs of Faction, and also for 538. Abby Wood is Associate Professor of Law, Political Science, and Public Policy at the University of Southern California, where she studies campaign finance, especially government transparency broadly, and campaign finance disclosure in particular. I recently spoke with them about campaign finance, the power of political parties, and the connections between the two, as well as other topics, including Bernie Sanders' political action organization, Our Revolution. I share that conversation in this episode, which is titled, Fuck You Money, and then some. I begin the episode with this quote from the Citizens United versus Federal Election Commission decision authored by Justice Anthony Kennedy of the U.S. Supreme Court. And here I quote, With the advent of the Internet, prompt disclosure of expenditures can provide shareholders and citizens with the information needed to hold corporations and elected officials accountable for their positions and supporters. Shareholders can determine whether their corporation's political speech advances the corporation's interest in making profits, and citizens can see whether elected officials are in the pocket of so-called moneyed interests. Justice Kennedy goes on, This transparency enables the electorate to make informed decisions and give proper weight to different speakers and messages. End quote. And now, Abby Wood reacts to that quote. So I think to understand 
why Justice Kennedy said this. We have to think back to what disclosure was like before the internet. So before the internet, if you wanted to see some, you know, records on who was supporting campaigns, you had to go to the FEC. And there's these apocryphal stories about like, I can't remember if it was the basement or like some storage in the men's restroom or something. There's some crazy stories about the links you would have to go to to actually see the records. Yeah. And so Justice Kennedy's kind of reacting to that and saying, look, whatever disclosure did before, we're now in an age where disclosure can really inform people and have teeth. And um, so that enables us to follow this um, path we've been asked to go down by people who oppose campaign finance reforms of deregulate and disclose because disclose, disclosure now really um, is more powerful and, and actually can get to people much easier. That's kind of the the context I think he probably felt like he was writing in. I know that that's an argument that has been made by people who oppose a lot of the limits and bans that are in the Federal Election Campaign Act and in BICRA, uh, which is the Bipartisan Campaign Finance Reform Act. We sometimes call it McCain-Feingold. Right now, you can look everything up online in a way that you couldn't before. So really, we're worried about the people's information, and we don't want to violate First Amendment protections, et cetera. So as for whether it's realistic, so I guess the piece that you have to believe to believe that it's realistic is that people are actually informed by disclosures. And so you got to establish kind of two links to get there. So one is that they get the message. And two is that they can then assimilate the message, right, into like their set of, um, you know, facts that they know about campaigns or ballot initiatives or whatever it is that people are spending on. So, you know, we look at these things. Do they get the message? Well, it turns out, I mean, the message does get communicated. It gets communicated in the media. It gets communicated on social media sometimes. It gets communicated by opposition researchers who are really eager to figure out if candidate X has NRA support or candidate Y has Planned Parenthood support. It's not comprehensive, right? I mean, we, we don't have to expect that people are going to fec.gov and searching for donors or searching for candidate disclosures. Um, you can just kind of understand that there are intermediaries that get the message out. So yeah, for some voters, you know, they're really seeing this stuff. And then are they able to assimilate it? I think that's a harder question. Uh, some of the research we've done, including research that I've done, gives this information in kind of a vacuum. Yeah. Um, and so as we add facts, you know, does the information matter less? And I mean, what we would think, yeah, probably. One thing I care a lot about because I care about transparency is this idea about whether the candidate has said no thank you to dark money support or if the candidate has dark money support or if like Jeb Bush in 2016, the candidate has actually raised money for a dark money group before then declaring their candidacy. And what I can tell you is that even in the presence of other facts, including policy-related facts, voters are, you know, like in the lab, like respondents, will still, re- will still react some to this kind of transparency information, right? So that, that's about how they care about transparency. We also know that the information is contained in the disclosures. So Adam Bonica at Stanford has done a bunch of work on this. And we know that if you just look at who the donors are, you can predict the floor votes. 
And so, th so that kind of tells us three things. Like there is information in there. The information um, gets to the voters and then the voters actually care at least about the transparency side of it. So that's implying that, or at least it's consistent with the idea that the donors are having influence over the candidate's behavior? Oh, no, I don't think we can say that. I think all we can say is that they go together, you know? Okay. So if you've ever given to a candidate, you may have given after they announced, you know, like maybe you gave to Elizabeth Warren after she announced a plan, right? Yep. Oh, she's going to deal with trans rights. I really like that. I'm going to send her $5, you know? So it could be that the the policies cause the donations or it could be that the donations cause the policies and we really don't have good and good good studies on that that i know of julia i wonder if in your neck of the woods in political science it's your sense that political scientists are thinking about such questions as whether voters are sophisticated enough to uh, uh attend to and actually assimilate uh the kinds of information that might be contained in disclosures yeah, so um, I am not an expert in this particular field. I have I have a colleague who's done some work, and I think she has found that the um, the disclosure makes a difference in how people perceive candidates. Um, I don't know that it's actually a matter of a huge amount of of sophistication. And here I'm going to draw on what I know about um, about voter psychology more generally. Yep. Which, which is that, um, so on the one hand, it's possible for, um, for there to be, you know, organizations that have names that sort of conceal what they're doing. On the other hand, you have a lot of interest groups that are, that are pretty clearly labeled that are paying, you know, that are paying for ads and people know what the NRA is, right? Yeah. People know what certain types of groups are and, I think I think that's actually a pretty clear identity cue for voters, right? As the parties sort and you get a sense of which group you're in and which group you're not in, that is that is pretty clear. You you don't have to be a deep expert on a, a policy area to know that you agree or don't agree with with the NRA or you're sympathetic or not with the uh, the AARP, the, um, the American Association of Retired Persons, or something, something along the or a union, right? Those you know where you you know where you stand on those. So I actually think it's quite consistent with the way that that people conceptualize politics as being about um, about their about their identity and about how they see themselves and see their views. So, just shifting to a to a different topic, and actually the one that motivated me to reach out to the two of you, uh, it's online front fundraising and growth in that area. And I was drawn to this topic uh, by an article in The Economist uh, from January, actually. Uh, the headline is, From AOC to Shining Sea, uh, Justice Democrat Democrats Want to Be the Left's uh, Tea Party. Uh, I don't know how the Justice Democrats would actually feel about uh, that headline, but uh, in the article, the, it says that the Justice Democrats uh, are a group founded by alumni of Bernie Sanders' 2016 campaign, and the group seeks to find and uh, help primary challengers to incumbents uh, that, quote, it deems insufficiently progressive. And one of the things noted, uh, at least that caught my eye in the article, is that some of the candidates uh, who have enjoyed uh, Justice Democrats' support have had quite a bit of success with fundraising, as the uh, article says. 
for that success uh, in fundraising, credit the new model of fundraising, which prizes online popularity and digital donations rather than a reliance on political parties, PACs, and corporate giving. And one of my first uh, questions was whether that growth in online fundraising could potentially be yet another threat to the influence of uh, political parties. Could it be another uh, factor that's weakening uh, political parties? And I know, Julia, you've written about that. I'll, I'll put the question first to Abby, but then I'll definitely want to hear your thoughts, Julia, on whether online fundraising uh, uh, could uh, be another factor weakening uh, political parties. But Abby, what do you think? So I definitely will defer to Julia on the party side of this. Um, I think it does this interesting thing, right? So now we have these conduits, um, Act Blue and Red Win. And, you know, if you can create a viral moment and then link to your Act Blue or Red Win site, then you can get donations from people who are otherwise not engaged by the parties, not engaging much with the parties, and also may not trust the parties. Um, and so it might be, I mean, it probably is democratizing the money in politics a little bit, bringing more people in. Um, and I, I've seen some kind of um, summaries of studies lately that people who do the small um, time d donations, you know, that they're, they're often first time donors. Um, and they, I, I feel like I may have seen some stuff saying that they might be a little more extreme politically. Um, and so it, it is a, um, a bit of a, I shouldn't have started the centrifugal, centripetal, I forget which one, whichever one pushes us out, right? Yeah, yeah. It's a little bit of that kind of uh, force if that's the case. I think we need to learn a little bit more about it before we can say for sure. Um, but so on the, yeah, so the fundraising side, right, rather than have to kind of know somebody and get the invitation to the wine cave and, you know, pay however much per plate, now you can just click on something that you saw on, you know, TikTok or Facebook or whatever yeah. that you thought was funny and, and give some money. And so um, it is, it's getting people participating in this kind of new way. Um, but I don't really know how effective it is. I, I, and I don't really know how much it undermines the parties in a real way because they also in the past, I don't know, decade or so have been able to accept um, like money first, first for uses that we didn't otherwise think about, yeah. like including spaces and offices and things like that. And so I feel like there has been a little bit of a countervailing push on that. But uh, one of the things that uh, I found interesting about what you had to say um, is the, uh, the, the, the ways in which it may be drawing in first time uh, donors, ones who uh, might not otherwise have been giving because in, th in thinking about this, uh, I was thinking that if online donations uh, or the growth in that area has it all uh, weakened parties. I could imagine a couple of different mechanisms by which it could. One is perhaps more obviously uh, it makes candidates less dependent upon the party uh, campaign committees for financial support. But I could also imagine it cannibalizing funding that would otherwise go to the party committees. But to the extent that it's drawing in first-time donors, that would seem to argue against that, uh, that latter mechanism. Yeah, and let me just say one thing on that because we we actually can't say for sure based on the data that it's bringing in new people because and this has to do with the regulations. It's a little bit in the weeds. I'll tell you about it. Um, 
because they're conduits, they're regulated differently than direct donors. Yeah. So Act Blue and Red Win have to report every penny that they distribute. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if you've given $5, that is now in the F it, to, to one candidate ever that wouldn't have shown up if you'd just given it in a check because below $200, we don't see that data um, because it just doesn't become disclosable below $200. But if you give through a conduit, then you do see it. And Hmm. so it's really hard to disentangle who's actually new and who's not. Right. And so, so the impression that we're getting a lot of new donors may not actually be accurate. So we're going to have to rely a lot on self-reporting for that sort of thing. Julia, and again, I know that fundraising isn't your area of expertise, but I wonder if you have any, at least intuitions on how plausible it might be that growth in online fundraising would, through either of the mechanisms that I described, be yet another force weakening parties. So here's how I would think about it. My sense is that between the the status that parties have or, you know, more accurately don't have in American politics and the way that campaign finance laws work, the the really important factors here, the ships have mostly sailed, right? Because candidates <laughs> can raise um, you know, candidates can can raise money in a variety of ways on their own. They don't need parties. And that was true before this trend of small donors. And the sense, you know, I, I feel like these conduit sites that Abby's talking about are also kind of a feature of what I would call weak parties and strong partisanship, where people have, have a strong kind of sense of the issues or a strong sense of their partisanship, but they don't, as, as Abby said, they don't really necessarily trust political parties themselves. So I think this is a this is a challenging state of affairs because politics ultimately requires people to build coalitions and to think not only about their what they might need, but about how they might come into conversation with others who share their, their broad goals and values, but maybe have some other different priorities and perspectives. And that's, to me, that's what parties should do. And they can do that across, you know, a range of, of types of issues or whatever. Um, and so in that sense, small donations based on issues and based on candidates does sort of contribute to that fragmentation. I think it's not, it's not a major driver of that. Um, there's also this debate, which I think one of you alluded to about the degree to which moving, working through an official party channel might, um, might encourage more moderate donors or might encourage more moderate, ultimately more moderate policies and views. And that there's, there's a linkage between extremism and some of these smaller donors or more kind of advertising or internet based practices that we see. And I can't deny that there's, there's research suggesting that. Um, And there are these pretty live debates in in American politics in among scholars about the degree to which different institutional practices makes make things more ideological, right? The, the degree to which if you're more dependent, you know, if, if primaries are open, does that make, um, does that produce more ideological candidates or more moderate candidates? You know, what, what happens when you're just drawing from a very motivated set of party activists versus from a larger public. And that that has implications on the campaign finance side as well. And this question about whether small donors are, um, are more ideological or hold more ideologically extreme positions. As I said, that's a debate around the literature. It's hard to make causal claims as it always is. But I think the normative debate about that, about 
what are the moderating forces in politics that bring people into the center is, again, I think the ship has kind of sailed. I don't know that moderation in, in policy is always everyone's idea of a good time. There are mm-hmm. a lot of crappy uh, eras in American politics that are that are associated with compromise and bipartisanship. So like, I don't really think it's my place to put a normative value on, on moderation necessarily. I think sometimes people who have extreme and passionately held views have good reason for that. But yeah, so I wouldn't say small donors are, are contributing to the state of affairs in a big way. At the same time, I think what they have done is they have allowed candidates who don't appeal to some of the major donation forces to, um, to gain political support and also to kind of make a discourse of that political support and talk about small donors. And now this is something that we see candidates brag about. And I had initially thought like a year or two ago that there was some potential for this to be a way that Democrats, at least, who claim to oppose the current campaign finance regime could circumvent the, the legal limitations to campaign finance laws um, and could sort of create new campaign finance practices in line with the values they say they have. This kind of came crashing down when there was some stuff reported about the need to have a certain number of donors to get into, to qualify for the democratic debates. And it turned out that what you essentially had was people raising a lot of money and spending it in order to get enough donors to get in the debates. And so it wasn't very efficient. Um, So, you know, my hopes of that have been dashed, but I did, I actually did have a kind of, um, beautiful vision that some informal norms about about small uh, donations would would catch on and that would allow candidates of all ideological stripes to change their practices a little bit. I've got a little uh, uh, statistic, uh, um, uh, experimental data on that actually that I was just looking at. Yeah, so um, um, in addition to these the dark money relationships that I told you about before, I also put in the percent of their support from small donors and everywhere in every subgroup um the you know my baseline was 40 percent and the 60 percent and 80 percent are statistically distinguishable and they get a lot more support so um and i actually think you were mentioning i think the colleague you were talking about before was amber wachowski is that how she says her last name yeah yeah Yeah. and so in that in that i just taught that yesterday that paper (laughs) um yeah and in that experiment that they run where they set up some ads and then they have either a news story afterwards or they change the disclaimers that are on them, the kind of stand by your ad um, information that their regulations require at the end of it. One of their treatments was a news story saying that the candidate had, it was like hundreds of thousands of small donors. Yep. And um, that candidate was like reaped a lot of benefit from from that disclosure and or from that yeah we call it a disclosure but it was a newspaper you know it was via a newspaper um so anyway like i actually think there is some evidence that we have that shows that there is um, a hunger for small donors on both sides of the aisle kind of interestingly So does, so we're recording this the day after Super Tuesday, does Bernie Sanders' weak performance uh, yesterday uh, stand somewhat uh, at odds with that finding? 
you know, I just think that at the end of the day, people don't care that much about campaign financing. And I hate to say it because it's most of what I spend my time thinking about, <laughs> but I think they care about health care and they care about immigration and they care about abortion and they care about their taxes and, you know, guns and all the other stuff. Um, and I know, I mean, I can still find effects of these things, but um, I just think people at the end of the day don't prioritize these things, even though they like them. And certainly speaking for myself, uh, as a Democrat, I prioritize the election of someone other than Donald Trump. And so that's pretty right. important to me. Right. And so you have some predictions about who would be better at that. Yeah. And, that, and that are like divorced from small donors, probably not based on small don donors. Right. <laughs> now, and actually, so, so since you mentioned that, one, one of the things that um, uh, has factored into my decision making for better or for worse, uh, and perhaps with insufficient information, is assessments of uh, electability. And I remember seeing somewhere, I think I might have seen Julia, you uh, talk about this in a piece of yours. Uh, some have argued that electable, quote unquote electable, is code for uh, white man. And as, as the de democratic race uh, uh, appears to be uh, reaching equilibrium as a uh, two-person race, I know Elizabeth Warren is still in, but if you believe the odds at 538, uh, and certainly given what happened in Massachusetts yesterday, I think it's only a matter of time before she drops out. Um, it would seem that electable is for many Democrats, maybe code for white man. And I think uh, you, you, Julie, if I'm, unless I'm confusing this with a different paper, uh, uh, you cited Lee Zhu uh, as having argued that. I, I wondered, Julie, if you think that electable is unfortunately for many uh, voters code for white man. So I think that it, it might be. I think it's complicated. Okay. Um, Particularly in the area of president, because we, we don't have a lot of um, we don't have a lot of examples, right, of someone who deviates from a particular set of demographics um, being being even in the race, much less whether or not they they win. Um, I think there's a very specific set of narratives coming off the 2016 election that have to do with racial backlash against the Obama administration and a gender pe penalty for Hillary Clinton. And again, it's, it's difficult to know because, you know, last time we had an African-American president, oh wait, there wasn't one. Um, similarly, <laughs> having a woman um, as the nominee. But I do think there's this combination of, of the 2016 uh, election outcome having been so, so striking for Democrats both because it was unexpected and because it was seen as a fairly, I think, catastrophic loss. Um, but again, you don't get a whole lot of variation because all the other people who have lost to Republicans um, and Democrats, for the most part, have also been white men. Yeah. But I think that there is a sort of um, risk aversion happening right now. I think part, I have also written about this in a there's a book called The Making of the Presidential Candidates 2020. And I have a chapter in it where I argue that parties are kind of intrinsically risk averse institutions. They, you know, they are they're very slow. They, you know, of course, I, my kind of one argument is like, of course, they go with an argument that about what happened in 2016 that is not only extremely averse to, to change or experimentation, but that benefits, you know, the, the group of people in society that's most powerful. Um, and that that's just a 
feature of how parties operate as, um, as institutions. And I think that Biden in particular, she didn't ask me to explain Biden's candidacy, but I'm going to go for uh, it. Or at least offer <laughs> one, one theory, which is that Biden in particular offers a sort of preservationist notion of going back to the Obama years and back to normal. And for some people, I think the, the challenge that Democratic Party finds itself in is for some people that's very comforting and compelling, and for some people that's very frustrating and alienating. Yeah. And that's the, you know, that's the, the dilemma that has to be solved. I also, I don't know that I think, let's see, how to say this. I don't know that I think that the idea that a white man is more electable has benefited anybody but Biden. Um, it's hmm. true that Bernie Sanders is a white man. Um, I also think it's true that he is objectively a skilled campaigner and somebody who won a lot of votes last time. Um, yeah. You know, it's he, I think if you just look at what he does, he looks like someone who should be pretty skilled. People have, I think, a strong set of concerns about candidates who are too far ideologically from the mainstream. The research on this is mixed. There are papers published in top political science journals that that say that moderates have an advantage. There yep. are some that say that that advantage is fading off as polarization increases. So, you know, and there's this recent paper, the Colin Brookman paper that was written up in Vox, where they say that um, that Sanders is is dependent on high youth turnout to be electable. There, people have questioned the assumptions in that paper. I've read the the write up. I haven't read the whole paper, but that is kind of the that's kind of the picture. We saw lots of white men who who did not last very long in the Democratic race. And again, I'm not really sure that that all of the the men in the race have um, necessarily benefited from that. I do think that it is a way to potentially criticize women and candidates of color. So I, in thinking about potential connections to uh, fundraising, I wonder if either of you knows if there's been any investigation of the influence of candidate race or gender, um, or I suppose ethnicity as well, on fundraising success, because uh, failure to succeed there could be uh, a real headwind to electability. Yeah, so Jake Grumbach and Alex Son have written an extraordinarily interesting paper about this. So, you know, of course, the FEC doesn't track race. So yeah. what they do is they use this kind of new, I mean, I don't know that it's new to them, but it's something people are starting to use. Um, this Bayesian method that's um, based on, you know, the person, the donor's name, and also the, um, like, the makeup of the census tract. Mm -hmm. to estimate um, people's ethnicity mm -hmm. or race or whatever. And uh, what they find is that people give in group, right? Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. white people are more likely to give to white people and black people are more likely to give to black people, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and then also, of course, um, that affects the amounts, right? <laughs> Just because the number of, yeah. I mean, not only because the number of donations differs, but in part because of that. And so um, Jake and I are working with a third author right now to kind of flesh out the normative implications of campaign finance deregulation in light of this, because we have such a big wealth gap in this country and it runs along racial lines. 
Mm-hmm. And so, you know, getting rid of limits and bans is just going to advantage white people, white candidates far more than black and brown and, you know, candidates. And so, um, so I think it's a really important question. And as a field, campaign finance has been really pretty white. And it's a question that we've largely ignored. And so I'm really glad that we're finally starting to look at this because I do think it has some important normative implications. Well, and I could see that kind of uh, result as yet another argument for public funding of elections. Uh, I, I won't put you on the spot individually, Abby, but I wonder if uh, there is anything like the uh, consensus, Republican skeptics be damned, the consensus among natural scientists about climate change. Is there a consensus among campaign finance uh, researchers that public funding would be superior to what we have now? So among the researchers, you know, I'm not sure because the the folks that, um, well, I guess you're, you're, you said Republicans be damned, but like, the, you know, the, the libertarian type folks um, just won't be into that at all because it requires yeah. um, spending limits. I mean, yeah, it requires voluntary spending limits, basically. I think most people on the left are pretty open to it um, and think that it might have really important representational effects, you know. So yeah. be, be, if we get rid of this early money primary where black and brown candidates just suffer more, you know, it's just so much harder for them to get money then we'll get more black and brown candidates. There's some suggestive evidence that that has happened in um, New York City with their campaign um, finance program, which is like a seven or eight to one match at this point. Um, A little bit of evidence that the donor class diversified in the Seattle voucher program. Didn't diversify much, mostly diversified along class lines rather than racial lines, but it's a fairly white city. Um, So anyway, it seems like, like this expectation that people have that it will help um, both descriptive representation and also, you know, kind of um, bring more people into the process may be right. Um, and so, but I, but I think that people don't really agree on the contours of the perfect program because there's a few different versions of how to design these things. Still on the subject of race, ethnicity, and gender, Julia, I, I wonder if you have any thoughts on what Democrats can do, at least those Democrats who want to expand the range of candidates who are who are viable, uh, expanding the range beyond white men to draw to draw in and actually uh, sustain more uh, successful candidacies by women and candidates of color, seeing more nominees, um, but who also want to win general elections. How how do, how do they? motivate more voters to support female candidates and candidates of color? How do Democrats manage, say, in 2024 to sustain diversity among the presidential candidates uh, for longer than we saw this year, while ensuring that eventually those women uh, and or candidates of color can succeed in general elections? Yeah, so I think that one of the challenges here is it's not exactly clear to me that national parties are really in a position to do this, both in terms of how they work and in terms of the kinds of behavior that people accept from them. Um, This is, I think, in some ways sort of akin to a problem I'm guessing all of us have faced as we think about how how to diversify things like faculty hiring and graduate students and 
people at sort of the top of the educational rung, right, by the time you get to that level, it is too late and you're doing damage control. And mm -hmm. similar with, with the, the idea of the presidency, right, by the time you're thinking about the diversity of the field of candidates for president, you, you know, you, you've missed a lot of, of pipeline issues. So the thing that parties can do to ensure, one thing they can do to ensure greater diversity, and obviously, as you point out, this is a, this is a especially pressing concern for Democrats who have a very diverse um, electoral base, um, is, is to encourage those candidates to run for other offices. So you have a, a deep bench of people with, um, with experience and with donor networks and who kind of know how to play the game. And then in particular, if you're coming from, if you're coming from a demographic group that isn't, as um, as well off financially, that it becomes even more important for you to kind of know how to play the game. That I think is so. That is my kind of political science institutiony advice, right? Yep. Encourage encourage women and people of color to run for state legislature, run for Congress, and I think that that's an important part of the story. I do also think though that particularly the presidential level, where where an inordinate amount of our attention has become focused, we have this uh, kind of fetish for outsider politics that makes it really hard. It, it creates an additional, an additional burden for women and people of color because it's harder for those groups, I think, to make a case for themselves as outsiders. They need to come in with, as I said before, with, with donor networks, knowing how to play the game, with experience. Um, it's much harder to come in um, as an outsider, I think if you're from a, a conventionally, uh, traditionally underrepresented group, I wonder in you know some future election if that will be tested a little bit, and we'll see someone who um, who is able to catch fire, who is a you know African American ver version of Pete Buttigieg, or uh, a, a woman who is um, you know sounds a lot like Bernie Sanders, who is not really an outsider, but um, who makes. <laughs> Um, and who really drive, I mean, Elizabeth Warren, obviously is ideologically similar to Bernie Sanders and had been outside politics for a lot of her career. She did talk a little bit about that and made some kind of populist appeals and I don't think they really took off, but, um, we'll see, but it's, it's hard to imagine that taking off at this point. So you did kind of see a little bit of that, but someone really coming in and making a sort of outsider appeal or really coming in, not having all that baggage you know, in contrast, in, in the rest of the field, some of the candidates who were in bad shape earlier and who dropped out of the race earlier, you have people like Cory Booker and Kamala Harris. And yeah. I think that, you know, what really stood out to me early on with them is that they had long records, mm -hmm. right? They had held, um, particularly, you know, they had held office, you know, before getting into the Senate where they had to make difficult decisions and in troubled context. And so it's hard to imagine trying to run for president without those stepping stones. And yet that creates baggage. And in a primary where people are looking for someone to, to transmit their values and symbolize their values, having a complicated and compromised record is, is a real liability. So I guess my, my advice comes with a big caveat that I'm not sure politics works that way anymore. Yeah.
You mentioned Bernie Sanders a few minutes ago, Julia, and I want to actually ask a question about Sanders and finance, and I'm going to direct this one to Abby. Uh, Sanders has made a big deal about the fact that uh, he does not rely on support from a super PAC. So he uh, not only does he rely on a lot of small donations, but he does not, unlike uh, most conventional politicians, rely on a super PAC. But his organization uh, that he created uh, called Our Revolution, uh, even though it doesn't present itself as a super PAC, uh, some have argued that it functions like one. And that worse, uh, it actually has weaker uh, disclosure requirements. I wonder, Abby, if you have a, a take on those criticisms. I do. <laughs> um, so that is a dark money group. Um, and so they're not required to disclose. It's organized as a 501c4, um, which is, you know, ostensibly a social welfare organization. And I actually spoke with Bernie's lawyer about this. Um, And, you know, he was like, look, we want to do other social welfare stuff. Because I was kind of saying, you know, you should have really gone with a super PAC. And he was saying, well, but we want to do non-electoral spending as well. And I haven't followed up to see whether they've done non-electoral spending. Um, So... My understanding is they do some limited amount of voluntary disclosure above certain thresholds. I know other groups at least used to do that, like Move On voluntarily discloses everything above $5,000. But the thing is, like, we don't know if they're disclosing all of it, (laughs) Um, even above that threshold. We don't, you know, it's, it's, um, they're able to, to hide a good deal below that 501c4 uh, status. And so I'm a little bit annoyed with the way this is all shaken out because of course there was this enormous super PAC spending in support of Warren in the past couple of weeks. And there was a, you know, who knows if Twitter's real life, but there was a lot of, uh, consternation among the Bernie people that she had quote unquote accepted this support. And like, I mean, it's independent spending. You can't, but also it was more transparent than what their guy was doing. And so I thought that was pretty rich. Um, But it is important to have these organizations that, you know, do social welfare spending. It's just a dicey regulatory area where we need to figure out how we're going to structure their disclosures. Because right now the um, requirement is that they only disclose donations that are earmarked for particular ads. And so the way they get around that is they don't earmark any donations. And so like they run some ads, but none of the, none of the donations are actually earmarked to those ads. And so everything just remains dark, you know, but of course, super PACs can end up in what we call a gray money situation where they can receive, like there's a Trump super PAC that has, has like $50 million, but only five donors. And all of the donors are corporations. And so corporations are not required to disclose their donors either. And so you can just have these kind of vaguely worded groups doing these, these expenditures and not get a lot of money out of them. I mean, excuse me, not get a lot of information about who is behind it. Um, even though you're a super PAC and you're required to disclose. And just one additional thing there that's not really about Bernie, but is about this, um, this setup and the risks that it can present is if you think that foreign money is a bad thing, right? Like this is how it is going to enter, right? So one of the allegations about Parnas and Fruman, right? This is Lev Parnas and Igor Fruman who were 
indicted for straw donor violations. And there's also a big, um, like there was Igor Freeman took out a mortgage and the guy that signed for the mortgage was a Russian national or something. I don't really know. But anyway, that money ended up flowing into, I think, the Trump super PAC, right? So that was that came from the corporate form. And the only reason that was even uncovered is that there was a lawyer comparing addresses in a different, you know, kind of trying to find all this stuff. But in general, that could have gone under the radar. And if that one got caught because one of the LLCs was to Parnas's home address, right? Um, there's a lot of people who've set these up in a more sophisticated way and can launder foreign money directly into our campaigns. And so disclosure is really important, even if voters don't care that much about it. And so I think that the Sanders campaign should, should care more about it. I think all campaigns should care more about it. And I think they, you know, should work hard against dark money. But Again, like I don't think it's necessarily a winning campaign strategy to to make that one of your issues. So maybe a couple of questions before we have to wrap up. And the first of the final two, I think, I'm going to direct to Julia. You recently wrote a Washington Post article about preference primaries. Can you briefly tell us what they are and what problem it is you think they solve? So I have kind of a, I mean, I have one view of what the um what the problems with the primary process are. And then I'm sort of like thinking about, you know, how do we solve this? And I think one of the problems that we have, one of the main problems we have with the primary process right now is that people want it to be like a general election. And so there's an expectation that it will be, on the one hand, it'll be very freewheeling and loose and uncertain. um, And that it will be very participatory. And then on the other hand, the, the sort of practical reality that that, doesn't make necessarily for the most um, the most concise or strategic process of selecting a nominee means that we we sort of know this this is the central party decides argument right is that party leaders try to coordinate um, and they try to um, they try to winnow down the field and generally if you are a person who lives in a late primary state you don't actually get to vote for the the whole slate of candidates. Um, the whole thing gets sort of wrapped up not according to its real rules. I think the other problem with that that, that goes along with that, with this gap between the formal and the informal rules and the expectation that a primary will look like a general election, um, and then it ends up doing so in a very superficial way, is that our current system doesn't really give us a good way to reconcile competing factions or viewpoints. I actually wrote about this today also. Or to kind of cull among lots of qualified candidates who've proven that they have this kind of basic political chops. So our system does a really good job of eliminating people who don't have it, including every, you know, every time there's always a candidate who like you think should kind of have it and they just don't. Yeah. Um, and it was perfectly well qualified. Um, so our system does a good job kind of weeding those people out. It doesn't do a great job of saying, okay, here's, here's five people or two people who are, who, who do have it and they appeal to certain elements of the party which one really is best? I don't think our system does a great job of answering that question. And so I thought, let's flip the script. Um, and there's a couple reasons for this. And allow, um, allow there to be a kind of broader preference primary where people weigh in on who they want the nominee to be. And ultimately, this is what we're doing anyway. We essentially have a preference primary. We, we vote for delegates who are pledged. If you're a Democrat, you vote for... Um, delegates who are pledged at the national convention, not bound. 
And, you know, let people weigh in. Who's their first choice? Who's their second choice? Who's their third choice? But also maybe have a, a list of questions about issues. And this obviously would be very contentious to put together, but why not? Um, about where do you really stand on a couple key issues? Which issue is your priority? Which issue has the party let you down on in the past? And that this would all sort of instruct a set of elected delegates, the same kinds of people that go to the convention as delegates now. So these are local activists. They're... Um, there are people who are active, who are representative, um, represent different parts of the party. Super delegates also are elected officials, right? So they go in and armed with information, they can actually bargain and try to sit down and make sense of it. This is very hard for voters to do, not because voters lack intelligence or sophistication, but because it's very hard to coordinate with millions of other people you don't right. know. Right. Um, and I had my students do this, and. Um, my party's class last fall. I had them, I had them say what their preferences were, and then for the primary, and then they had to guess what the kind of what the shape of the class looked like. And they didn't do badly, but they didn't do that great. And there was only like thirty-four of them, and they're all political science majors at the same small private regional university. Um, and they didn't do a great job guessing what what everybody else thought. And so this is essentially what we're all trying to do in a primary: is try to guess. So let's take the guesswork out, or at least take some of it out. Let voters set the agenda. Let party leaders do the bargaining. There's not a good way to convey this information to the public. And I think there's some uh, deep distrust on the left and the right of elected representatives. Yep. And it makes me a little dismayed at the idea that elect that representational representative democracy is possible if there's such distrust and there's such, I mean, I think some of this, some of the reaction to the piece on the internet was just, standard issue internet people but if you really don't believe that their alderman or their state rep or a person who runs for party delegate i've uh one of my colleagues is um getting married to someone who's running for for a delegate and it's like i've been watching the work that goes into that and it's very sincere and even if i don't agree with their views it's very very you know this is a thing that you do not do for the glory if people can't make a little leap of faith and say, okay, these folks are going to do their best to represent me. And yeah, they might do it wrong. And yeah, you know, a person might come in now and then who really doesn't have the best of intentions, but ultimately representative democracy beats the hell out of all the alternatives. That to me is the sort of level of faith that's required to, to do this and to particularly have democracy in a gigantic country. Um, so I'm not really left with a lot of with a lot of faith that people um, can get their heads around that, and that's you know so that's sort of my in a nutshell my experience trying and failing to persuade the public that a preference primary would actually uh, represent better what what voters want. It seemed to me that it could be that the growth in super PACs and online donations, in each case, money that's not coming from the party, uh, could uh, weaken uh, party discipline uh, when a party is in power. Um, in other words, apart from its impact during campaigns, does the growth in super PACs or the growth in, or the growth in online donations give elected legislators uh, the equivalent of fuck you money? So money they have that uh, they've, they've 
they've they've received independent of the party and and does that then uh leave them feeling more empowered to buck their party leadership does it make for example nancy pelosi's job harder if uh, aoc is getting more of her money uh from outside of the party i wonder if, we, if, if either of you has any intuitions there of so I think that that's I think that that's the case, but I think it's dependent on a condition in which those um, those members of Congress are able to um, to sort of cultivate a distinct personal brand, and to the extent that it's politically advantageous to to cultivate that kind of mavericky um, reputation. I mean, that being said. There, when it comes to actually voting, a lot of the members of Congress um, have sort of come in line with the, with say the House Democratic leadership. And the final thing I'll say there is that members of Congress have a very different situation when their party controls the White House than when they, when they don't. And if if partisanship is what's driving a lot of what's going on, then what the president does is very important. If your party doesn't control the White House, you have a lot more leeway to cultivate your own political brand and that is that includes money but it's not just about money and abby i know that this is probably a little outside of your expertise but i want to give you a second if you want to also offer your thoughts yeah I'm, i was really interested because you were you said uh small do- donors or super PACs, and so i feel like those those might point in different directions because okay just starting with a super PAC. so if you really do have a solid super PAC. Uh, supporting you, first of all, you're probably already a pretty big deal and probably pretty, probably have some leadership positions and things like that. Like I kind of can't imagine mm-hmm. a super PAC in particular. And I can't really think of an example of somebody who would be kind of a nobody, but still have a massive super PAC that could get them past um, hurdles that, you know, they might, that might come from within the party. So, you know, um, I mean, I don't, I don't think of AOC as a nobody, but AOC has not yet ascended to party leadership, but I think still has quite a following, but you don't see AOC uh, building the kind of following that could translate into a super PAC. So, so, um, I don't know, because first of all, I doubt they did the justice Democrats. They might have one. They might be a C4. Oh, really? But I don't know. I, I don't really know the answer to that. Yeah, okay. she was the person I was thinking of. But then I was also thinking of her like she's this small donor queen, right? Yeah. Which I hear means she doesn't have to do call time. Yeah. But that means she's paying a tax to the Democrats, to the party, right? And they all, my understanding, and this is probably a Julia question more than me on this part, is like that they, they kind of all are assigned an amount they have to go raise. And then they can kind of raise it however they want, but that that's not really their money. Right. So if it's about small donations and the donations are going directly to their campaign, then that's not really fuck you money because they have to pay. They have to basically give that, you know, it gets transferred around within the party. A super PAC, I do think, could give you fuck you money. But I just can't think of an example of somebody who would actually say fuck you to their party who also has a big super PAC. But maybe that's just my failure to not have an encyclopedic knowledge of all these folks, you know. Yeah, Yeah, I I mean, I don't have one either, but... um... That logic makes good sense to me. It's also true that AOC doesn't need a super PAC, right? She's running in a safe district in the House. Right. Yeah, also true. Right, right, right. The, I mean, she might, if she gets a primary challenge or something, and it's it's clearly a very expensive media market, you know, she might get a different position down the, down the road. The Justice Democrats um, certainly have made rhetoric of, of, 
their dislike for super PACs. But a lot of these, I mean, Abby, again, this is your area, but I also <laughs> kind of feel like a lot of these are like, this super PACs are like super delegates or like whatever. It's become this sort of linguistic term to sing- signify something that's actually somewhat different than what it might be in reality. Yeah, let me just say what it is. For anybody who's listening, I want people to know this. Okay. <laughs> um, so super PACs are independent expenditure only groups that are banned from coordinating with candidates. Yeah. And so they actually, we talk all the time about Warren super PAC and Biden super PAC, but that's not actually like legally what's allowed. Now it turns out that the FEC doesn't really regulate the line uh, between a coordinated group and a non-coordinated group. And so there probably is a lot of coordination that goes on, which then undermines contribution limits, right? But super PACs can only make independent expenditures and they can't coordinate with candidates. When you each think about the kinds of changes that we've been talking about, so weaker parties, uh, changes uh, in uh, fundraising, I wonder if, for either of those, you see winners and losers, that is, uh, individuals or groups, uh, constituencies that are gaining or losing power as a consequence of any of those changes. So, so I'm guessing that the, sorry, Julia, I was just going to say, mm-hmm. I'm guessing that actually most of the story is Julia's. So I actually would just like to hear, I I say in the classroom, like we think, I think it's weakening the parties. I think it makes the parties less relevant, but I always think of Julia, like what would Julia say? So I'm glad to be able to listen to the master here. So you've just changed WWJD from what would Jesus do to what would Julia say? That's exactly Uh, right. Yeah, I'm going to make bracelets. I'm not 100% sure I can handle this pressure. I I thought a lot about this question, Michael, um, and I... It's hard to say in part because parties are so um, are so large and unwieldy, and in part because um, I think because different groups. So when I think about the Democratic Party, and I think about you know what groups in the Democratic Party have um, have experienced a decline in their power, I think unions are the first thing that come to mind. But I don't know that that's strictly because of the structure of parties, right? That's a, mm-hmm. that's a different kind of decline. Um, but I guess what I would say is that stronger parties would give more um, give more power to organized constituencies that can deliver votes, mm-hmm. and that's still true with weaker parties. Um, that of course, but I think that who benefits there are people who can be part of effective messaging. If party, if 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 parties, if parties are all about partisanship and they're all about messaging then the kinds of groups that have power, the kinds of groups that can drive the message and the kinds of groups that can raise money. And that in some ways, I think maybe sort of flips around the causal argument that you're trying to make, Michael, but that's sort of, to me, that's how that, um, that's how that, that works. Um, And what you have, what you have instead of, you know, once more robust, once more organizationally robust parties is you have national parties that are kind of completely dependent on, on messaging and on money and not a lot going on in this sort of middle and local level. And I'm not totally sure for Democrats, you know, who is, who has benefited from that through the eighties and nineties and two thousands, I would definitely have said this has benefited the kind of what, um, what Bernie supporters would derisively call corporate Democrats or moderate Democrats, democratic leadership council um, that's offered a kind of defensive and 
and moderate messaging, as well as fundraising operation. That's obviously changing. Um, but messaging is challenging for Democrats because they have a diverse coalition with a lot of different interests and priorities. For for Republicans, I think this is very much benefited not only the same moneyed interests, but also kind of well-organized, well-heeled, loud, socially conservative interests um, that message really effectively and message in ways that, that get Republicans to the polls. So I think, ironically, what I've been trying, and again, with extremely mixed results, um, to try to convey to people is that a, a truly strong party organization will have strength at all different at all different levels of the national, state, and local level, and will offer uh, points of of leverage where different kinds of people can can exert pressure and can um, can get represent representation for what they what they're trying to say and what they're trying to do. And when parties are very loose and diffuse, we operate in a context where money and messaging are the most powerful. And so even though it might seem like weakening the establishment is empowering to ordinary citizens, I'm not convinced that that's true in every case. That's it for Tatter. I want to thank Julia Zari and Abby Wood for taking the time to talk with me. For more information on them and on the topics we discussed, go to tatter.fireside.fm and find the page for this episode where you will find relevant links. To offer feedback on this or any other episode of Tatter, you can mention Tatter on Twitter using the handle at tatter underscore rags, or you can go to Apple Podcasts, formerly iTunes, and you can offer a rating or a review or both in any case thanks for listening and be well